0: I'm reading from Psalm 51, in the Church Bibles, it's page 573. The heading at the top of the psalm says, For the director of music, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You, who are God, my Saviour, and my tongue will sing, sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous. In burnt offerings offered whole, then bulls will be offered on your altar.
1: Thank you, Jane. You will notice that starts psalm starts with a heading. From the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Who is this David? Do we know who this David is? Do you remember that TV programme, This Is Your Life, when Eamon Andrews would appear from behind a curtain with a big red book and say, Fred, this is your life, and then he'd take them back to the studios and give a little history of who this person was. So I thought it would be good before we start just to look to see who David is. There's lots of references, but please don't look them up mm-hmm. unless you want to. Um, right, so where do we start with David? Well, David is the son of Jesse from Bethlehem, um, who p- plays the liar. He's a brave man. He speaks well. And he is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. That's in 1 Samuel 16, 18. Then we read about David in Goliath, don't we? Do you remember David when he sl- slayed Goliath? It's a popular children's story, isn't it, when we teach at Sunday school? We can read about that in 1 Samuel 17. Saul tries to kill David in 1 Samuel 19. David is anointed king over Judea, 2 Samuel 2. David becomes king over Israel, 2 Samuel 5. The ark is brought back to Jerusalem, 2 Samuel 6. David defeats the Amorites, 2 Samuel 10. So this is a man that seems to have everything going for him. God seems to be with him. Yet in 2 Samuel, we read about David in Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel 11, when David sees Bathsheba, he he desires her, is so great that he plots to have her husband Uriah killed. He does this by sending him into battle, doesn't he? In the front of the army. Having succeeded, he takes Bathsheba as his wife. Later they have a son called Solomon. This is the great king, King David, committing adultery, committing murder. After all it happened to him, his life where the Lord had blessed him and protected him, for it ended up like this. But then a man called Nathan arrives on the scene. If you want to turn back in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 12, You will read this. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except a little ewe lamb he'd bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him as his child. It shared his food drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this must die. He must pay for the land four times over because he did such a thing and have no pity on him. Then Nathan said to David, You are this man. So this is where we find this psalm starting. David has been brought up short by Nathan. He has been reminded of something that he did in his past. The first part of the psalm, which is verse one to one to two, is asking for David is asking forgiveness for this sin. David starts the psalm by pleading for forgiveness. He accepts he has fallen short, let the side down, gone astray from what God wants. King David has been stopped in his tracks. He is pleading for forgiveness. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the the stains of my sin. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify my sins. For David to get it together, he has to realise that it was only one place to turn. He knows that God loves him, that love does not fade with time. It is not conditional. God will look on him with love and compassion. David is aware that only God can put things right. What great words he uses in this psalm to describe God. The God that we have come here today to sing to, to pray to, to read about and hopefully learn a little bit more about. Unfailing love, great compassion and purifying. Three wonderful phrases. And I just wondered if there are any aspiring hymn writers amongst us or perhaps later listening online that could use those three phrases in a hymn for the three qualities of God. Wouldn't it be a lovely hymn? Let's move swiftly on. Three to six, a confession of sin. How do we confess our sins? Our starting point must be first to recognise them. How can we confess to something that we don't know about? I understand that an alcoholic, a drug addict, a sex addict, a gambler or any other addiction, the road to recovery can only begin when the addict accepts there's a problem. It's the same for sin. Do you know your sins? Do you hide them away? You will notice in the verse 6, there is a phrase in a secret place. Secret place. Do you hide your sins in a secret place? Looking up through commentaries, etc., I discovered that the original meaning of a secret place elsewhere in the Bible is plugging up. Plugging up or stopping access. During the days of the invasion of the Syrian army, Hezekiah had all the available water sources in Judea plugged up so that the invading troops would they be deprived of water? You can read about that in 2 Chronicles. Stopping the wells that supplied the city was one way of crippling the power over the enemy in 2 Kings. In order to reinstate the supply, the damage that was caused by plugging up sometimes required a lot of work. A lot of effort would have to be given to this task and in some cases it might not be worth the effort. God wants open access to parts of our lives that we have chosen to plug up, to keep hidden within our own little world. We think that by hiding them away, we protect ourselves from being truly truly known. David in the psalm clearly has sin in mind as part of the secret hidden away within that he's carefully shielding from the gaze of others. The confessing nature of Psalm 51 runs contrary to his and our own self-protection. The unplugging will allow streams of honest self-reflection to flow again. It is this transparency that God is looking for and in the end leads to the restoration. Not just restoration, but if you notice in verse 12, the restoration of joy. In the case of Psalm 51, David acknowledges and confesses his personal sin. We often remain unaware of what we are doing. As a result, we don't recognise the sin when it happens. Two weeks ago in uh, the Lent course, the Life Group, Tony Bond touched on the very subject we're discussing, the subject of guilt. Where did it come from? Why do you feel guilty? What should we do about it? And it was a, for those that was were here. It was very encouraging and interesting. And I would encourage you, if you don't attend the midweek meeting to do so, as you're missing out on a valuable time spent fellowship and studying God's word in a very informal way. I'd just like to spend a couple of minutes looking at anger. I was going to do something very risky here. I was going to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever suffered from anger, but I thought better of it. <laughs> but I tell you, there is at least one person that suffers from anger in this building. Jane knows who that Jane knows who that person is. But I swore into secrecy not to tell you my name. <laughs> my next note is just two words: Android phone. Jane is looking for a particular phone so that she can run a particular app for her diabetes. There is a great big long list of particular phones. So I lovingly forked out out some money on a phone. And she was very pleased with it until she came screaming downstairs in the morning, this has got Android 13, I only want Android 10. So I immediately saw the red mist come down. Because <laughs> inadvertently, I'd allowed the phone to upgrade. And it was now useless because you can't go back on it. And I was furious. Why hadn't I noticed this? Why hadn't Jane told me? Why, why do they do it? Why can't you wind it back, etc.? And at the end of the day, it was me getting uptight. For what reason? That's how anger can take control. It's never your fault, it's always somebody else's. If you look in the dictionary, anger is defined as a strong emotion that you feel when you think that someone has behaved in an unfair, cruel or an unacceptable way towards you. Do you notice how the dictionary definition, even then, puts the blame on somebody else? Anger is usually a cover-up for some other emotion that we'd rather not admit to. Fear, guilt, shame, sin, vulnerability in my case. The first step is to identify the true source of anger. Often we are under, unaware of what's really bothering us. Anger is something I need to work on. What makes me feel angry this week may not be the same as what makes me feel angry next week. The steps in dealing with anger, and for that matter with any other sin, is first to recognise it. I'm talking about unrighteous anger here. However, there is another type of anger. Righteous anger. Righteous anger stems from the anger that arises when we witness an offence against God or his word. For instance, many Christians reacted to an next next flick show that showed Jesus as a homosexual because this is blasphemous. Righteous anger was correct response in that case. But there is a distinction between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Righteous anger cares about others. It attacks the sin, not the sinner. Like a doctor trying to destroy any trace of disease, we point out some incorrect, something incorrect thinking or action that will bring a person back to righteousness. Righteous anger does not seek to hurt. Righteous anger stems from love because it's right, it recognises that someone's actions or word strays from the path of righteousness. Have a loving desire to bring someone back to the truth. However... Expressed in righteous anger should be a last result, not the first. Even though Jesus went into the temple and flipped the tables over, he spent a great deal of time in his ministry turning the other cheek. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. Admitting sin and working on it is painful, and we don't like to face pain, do we? Often we can enjoy basking in our anger, a sense of self-justification it breeds, so much so as we don't really want to give it up. If only we stopped and think about it for a while, we would finally acknowledge our wrongs. We frequently realise that our failing is in relationship to God, and not some, tr- not some twisted way that we try to explain as someone else's fault. We will see that our sin is a result of our rejection of God's way for our lives. Not only is sin against God, but it also has a long history in each of us. The psalm tells us, surely, in verse 5, Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Whether we want to accept uh, original sin and all its implications, was there ever a time when we were pure, unselfish? We may explain our choices and responses in life as the influences of family, society, and those do have a great effect on who we are and who we become. Regardless of these influences on our life, we know that we have essentially been self-absorbed, self-centred, for as far back as we can remember. We are the centre of our universe and all others are judged as they enter our universe on how they present, how their presence affects our hopes, dreams and sense of physical and spiritual well-being. To find the root cause of sin is not to solve it. But it can help us to see the grounds and the distorted choices and decisions that we make. And it can aid us in breaking the chain, the chain of negative consequences by making different choices in the future. Once we know our sin and hold it before ourselves, once we acknowledge its roots, the failure in our relationship to God. And once we understand the long-term influences and consequences, we are ready to experience the cleansing of God's unfailing love. Like David, we need to move on to the next part of the psalm. A plea for cleansing from sin. The New Testament puts it this way. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from unrighteousness. We read that in 1 John. The kind of cleansing involves certain steps. To confess this failing to God is a step forward. But the kind of cleansing the psalm mentions, joy and gladness returns. This requires us taking responsibility and seeking to set things right. Confessing sin does not erase the effects of our wrongs and not necessarily remove the pain. In verse 8 we read, Let your bones, uh, let your bones you have, cr- have crushed rejoice. Crushed bones may rejoice, but they may, ne- may, they, they may never be whole again. The effects of sinful choice, evil living, may never fully leave us, and more than, more, any more than the effects of long-term alcoholism or drug addicts or AIDS contracted from uncontrolled sexual addiction. Our rejoicing may have to be expressed alongside our lasting consequences of sin. Awareness, confession and restoration are not lasting and accompanied by the spiritual change. It's interesting, isn't it? that we confess our sins, but do we actually change? Do we want to change? Are we happy with our sins? Restoration. We read about in, 12, in 10 to 12. I've actually got a little story here because at six o'clock this morning, I suddenly woke Jane up and said that, I don't know why Simon has put Psalm 51, 1 to 19, Dan. He only wanted me to preach as far as 10. So I looked up my text that he'd sent me and the text actually said 1 to 19. (laughs) So my fortnight of preparation in 1 to 10 had suddenly disappeared out the window And I never got angry any more than Jane did. So I have to own up that I wrote this this morning because I thought I was stopping there. Lasting restoration and recovery can only be achieved based on a renewed spiritual relationship with God. We cannot recreate a clean heart By ourselves. Only God can regenerate our heart and renew a spirit. In twelve in verse twelve it says, Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Uttering the words of confession that begin this process of renewal is the power that comes from God, not us. Have you ever stopped to consider? How your sins affect others and how does your sin affect this church? Covering it up, plugging up the well prevents others from drinking the water. Our experiences of salvation, forgiveness and restoration can actually be an encouragement uh, for others. Investing our forgiveness... sorry i'm i'm lost here investing in forgiveness we invest a dividend that is testifying of the gracious mercy of god we can use this for other people testimony is a proper sorry testimony is a proper response to god's recreation of our inward person and we will and we can teach transgressors transgressors his way so that sinners will turn back we read that in verse 13 so here's some things to think about identify our sins bring them out into the open before god ask for forgiveness and restoration be joyful in christ even though you may be left with scars Tell others of your restoration. Who knows what God has in store for you? One final Bible passage. If you turn to Matthew 1 6, you will see the genealogy of Jesus. And you will see David's name appearing in verse 6. And I just wonder if your name will appear in years to come in the life of someone you shared your testimony with or helped out in love, who knows? Who knows what will become out of the Hope Explored course? I don't know, but I do know somebody that does. And I just pray that this church would be open and unplugged. And that our testimonies of joy and restoration would go before us in all that we do and say, Amen. Amen.